My name is Dr. Hawkins. I'm faculty for Indiana Wesleyan University. I teach in RMBSN and the graduate programs there. Indiana Wesleyan has a unique uh, philosophy for education, nursing education in particular, in that we have a global perspective in how we teach nursing. Uh, our doctoral program requires our DNP students to travel internationally as part of the uh, doctoral education. Um, but that's not where I really got started with doctoral, with international experience. When I was uh, 28 years old, uh, I was going through one of the toughest grieving experiences of my life. And uh, I reached a point where I just really wanted to walk away from my world. And the Lord brought an intervention into my life that um, changed it forever. And, and that was a medical mission team. And it was a way to get my perspective off of me and onto him. And a, um, he did a work in my life on that trip that changed it forever. And one of the things I learned in that, through that experience was that when we grieve or when we hurt, one of the best ways that we can work through that process is to, is to get our focus off of herself and get it onto him. So that experience started a catalyst in my heart that changed it forever. Um, and it's been a growth experience ever since. And that has led me down the road to this research project that I want to share with you today. The objectives for this, I'm not going to go through them one by one, but you can see, uh, you can go through, you can see them for yourself what they are. I want to start with a little bit more about my story. Um, as I said, the Lord worked in my life and um, did a major, major work as he showed me who he was. Um, until we see him for who he is, high and lifted up, we can't see ourselves for who we are. And until we see ourselves for who we are, we'll never be willing to say, like Isaiah did, here am I, send me. Um, I want to start with a devotional message today that is uh, the devotional message that starts every single mission team that when I travel with the mission team I travel with. This is the devotional message that starts every trip that we take. If I've heard this one time, I've heard it probably 50 or 60 times. Um, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then he said unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he may send forth labors into his harvest. When we see people, what do we see? The first thing we we always see when we look at people are their temporal conditions, the temporary things, poverty, poor sanitation, bad health, temporary things. The second thing we notice is their moral condition. 
drug addiction, abuse, neglect. Those things are common world round. And that tends to be where we get stuck as we minister to people. When we get stuck on those two things, we don't change we don't change anything. We get stuck there. We don't all we're doing is going and doing it, putting a band aid on a problem. We have to change our vision of people to what Christ saw when he was moving moved with compassion. We have to see them as sheep with no shepherd. We have to move our vision to the spiritual. We have to see the spiritual needs of people. If when we look at people, we don't see their spiritual needs. What we do, whether it is in a foreign country or right here in the United States, is just temporary. It doesn't meet the spiritual needs. We tend to think that this universe is what's real. This temporal life is what's real. It's not. What's real is our next world, our eternal world. And that is the world where our interventions have real meaning and real value because they're eternal. That being said, there are things that we do when we go on these trips that impact our lives when we come home. Um, The background of this research project stems from two students that I took with me. I started taking students with me in 2011. I took two students in my, I was teaching at a different university at the time in a pre-licensure program. And I opened up a trip to El Salvador to my students. Well, I expected the students to go with me to be the best and the brightest in the class, my top students. That's not who volunteered to go. It was the two lowest performing students in the class. And when I saw who volunteered, I groaned, oh, no, I don't want to take these two students with me to a foreign country. They were 19-year-old girls. One of them had never been out of Kentucky. Neither had ever been on an airplane. One of them had never made an adult decision for herself. She was still calling home on Friday night and asking her parents permission to go out with her boyfriend, even though she was living on campus at college. When she asked to go on this trip, her parents said, absolutely not. Um, She was 19. They wouldn't give her her birth certificate to apply for a, a passport. So she made a trip to Frankfurt and got her own birth certificate, paid for her own passport, raised her own money, and told them, I'm 19 years old, you can't stop me, and went on that trip. The other little girl was a cheerleader for our, our uh, college She decided that when she came back from that trip that cheerleading was um, taking too much of attention away from her studies and gave up her scholarship so that she could concentrate on becoming a nurse. She went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class. The other little girl, the first little girl I was talking about, she she had ADHD and dyslexia. She was never going to go to the top of the class, but she became a good solid B student. Neither one of these girls uh, expected 
this trip to change their lives in such a dramatic way. But that's not the most dramatic thing that changed in their lives. We understand the impact it's going to have on cultural competence. That's been well studied. That's documented in the literature very, very well. But let me tell you what's going on in these girls' lives eight years later. One is now uh, going back and getting her master's degree in teaching, in, in nursing, teaching nursing. The other girl, the one who had never been out of Kentucky, came back. Um, it took her two tries to pass her boards. But right about the time she got her first nursing job, her best friend, while she was up getting a college education, her best friend was at home getting addicted to drugs. Her best friend asked her one year over, over Easter to watch her children, three children. She never came back and got them. So she took on these Three incredibly damaged children as a single mother now to somebody else's children. And she's fought tooth and toenail to get these children. She now has adopted three children that are not her own. She has no biological relationship for. She, got, she has been to court and fought the system tooth and toenail to get custody of these kids and get them in the kind of counseling they need to have normal lives. This is a girl who did not have the confidence to go out with her own boyfriend without her parents' permission at 19 years old. This trip turned her into an adult and gave her the confidence to fight for somebody else's children. The impact on her life cannot be measured. I know the impact it has had on my life. But I saw it impact these girls in such a dramatic way that I started thinking, I knew it impacted me, but I thought I was just the only one that experienced this because I was in such a place spiritually that I needed a major intervention from God in my life. And then I saw him use these same things to come back and impact other people. So I said, as, I'm an educator at heart, okay? So as you see this uh, presentation be uh, rolled out today, the emphasis is going to be on the educational aspects of how these trips impact people coming back. But there are other ways, too. So I, as we look at this, those two girls' lives uh, – prompted a pilot study in which I took five participants. They were all pre-licensure nursing students. Obviously, the, with five students, we didn't reach saturation. It was a mixed-method study. It, it uh, had a pre-test, post-test, um, Likert-like survey that measured confidence. What was your confidence in your nursing practice, in your clinical practice? And then there was a survey questions that we asked uh, that was uh, open-ended questions that were uh, qualitative in, in nature that we wanted some, um, ex- them to expound on what they were learning from this trip. We were trying to identify concepts that were gonna, they were going to bring back that were impacting their practice when they got home. Um, part of the, the thought process is we're missing a major 
opportunity to teach something more than cultural competence with these opportunities. There are things that are impacting practice permanently when we get home. The way we interact with our patients, the way we see the world, the way we see each other, the way we see God working, not just in our lives, but in the lives of the world around us, that we're not measuring, that we're not identifying. So I started thinking about this and set this little pilot study up. And these are the ideas that came out of this initial pilot study. It, the, uh, these, these five ideas that we identified, confidence was affected, their ability to communicate was affected, their ability to adapt in difficult circumstances was affected, their creativity in overcoming adversity, and their ability to think critically. These were the things these five pre-licensure nursing students identified in that initial pilot study. Um, as you can see, this is a, there are some uh, comments that came out of it. This is a student that commented on how it affected confidence. And she said, I think the biggest thing that I took away from this trip is my confidence. When you have already held screaming babies and tried to take their temperature or helped a hypotensive woman lay down to stabilize her blood pressure, then the next time it happens, you will not hesitate to act and will not be thrown off your game by unexpected or undesired complications that frequently arise. A few years ago, I read an article that was in education literature, not nursing literature, not healthcare literature, and it talked about a concept called intuitive conceptions. And it's this idea of this little file drawer in our brains that files every experience that we have in, our, in there so that when the next time we see that experience come up, we get this little mental secretary that's filing through that file drawer and pulling that experience out and in our subconscious and comparing it to the experience we're having right now. So we can compare it, and you have this subconscious thing going on that tells you, hey, I've done this before, and I know how to handle this situation. And that's how confidence starts. It's also how critical thinking starts. So we have a student here who's commenting on how that has affected her confidence, which in the long run is going to affect her critical thinking. So if that student is able to identify that, how is the healthcare worker, whether it's a healthcare professional in any role, how is that affecting their confidence? When they come back and they see a need in their community, they now have the confidence to say, hey, you know what? I did this in a resource limited environment. What about here? There's needs here. Jesus said that we're to go to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, all at the same time. He didn't say go to Jerusalem first, and when you got Jerusalem all figured out, then move to Samaria, and then move to, you know, the othermost parts of the world. You've got you to fix all the problems here before you can move out to the next concentric circle. You have to, he wants us doing it all at the same time. It's, there's a whole lot of um, uh, mission romance involved with going to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
But there's needs right here, too. So the, the, the first thing that we saw come out of that initial pilot study was, that, was uh, confidence. The second thing was communication. One of the worst things we do in healthcare among the professions is communicate with one another. We think we speak the lang- same language. We don't. I uh, teach a, a um, capstone course in RNBSN. So I see nurses, RNs, from every different area of healthcare. My background is neonatal ICU and pediatrics. I have 30 years of pediatrics under my belt. I don't do adults. I'm allergic to adults. Um, but um, we have, in the NICU, we have our own language that I can promise you nobody else in healthcare understands. But I've talked to these nurses in my class that come from adult ICUs. They speak a foreign language to me. I listen to some of the things they come up with, and I'm thinking, what are you talking about? I had a student I talked to yesterday in the FNP program. I also teach in the FNP program at IWU, who uh, was trying to tell me where she worked, and she used a term that I have never heard of in my life. And, And I said, what are you talking about? And then she had to explain it. It was involving long-term care facilities, and it was a term I'd never heard used. If that's what's happening within nursing, when we talk about communication with other healthcare professions, we don't talk to one another well. But this started said, when I first felt arrived, I felt like there was no way I was going to be able to talk on their level. Before the week was over, I was able to feel comfortable talking to the healthcare team. Another student said, seeing how the team members communicated with each other also helped me to learn to communicate more effectively. One of the things that happens when you travel with these teams, barriers drop. We're so good with our silos here in the United States. We have our silos so well erected in healthcare that we don't want to cross those boundaries. Interprofessional practice is a new concept in healthcare. It shouldn't have been. We should have been communicating with one another all along. But those silos are so carefully guarded in healthcare. When you get in these teams, some of those barriers get dropped. So we learn to communicate with one another much more comfortably. That comes home with these students too. If it came home with the students, is it coming home with us too? I don't know. We're not studying that. We're not looking at that. Uh, but we should be. Is this an opportunity to teach healthcare professionals to communicate with one another in a much more effective way? I think it is. And we're missing this opportunity because we're not doing the work to find out. Adaptability. This student said, never in my life has my ability to adapt been tried so hard, but I learned how flexible I really am. This student, the the story behind this that she told was about the night that all the water was turned off, all the hot water, the electricity and the water was turned off in our village, and they had to carry water for baths that night. She'd never done anything like that in her life. Um, And she learned that, hey, you know what, I can take a bath out of a bucket. And she had to adapt. Um, Learning how to build a a spacer out of a 20-ounce bottle. Um, 
resource-limited environments, you learn to adapt what you've got. And they were, it's amazing to me. We are one of the rich, we are the richest country in the world, and yet we waste a lot of resources, a lot of resources. My practice is 90%, 98% inner city low income Medicaid. And Medicaid will only pay for one spacer every six months. But yet my kids are going to moms and dads and grandmothers in school. They need at least four spacers each. I've taught them how to make spacers out of 20-ounce bottles. We learned this on the medical field on a, with a medical team. By the way, you can find out how to do that on World Health Organization's um, website if you are interested in learning that. I learned it here at this conference several years ago. Um, creativity and overcoming adversity. This student said, I would consider... Doctor, this is she's talking about the team medical doctor. He is from Mexico. He's an internal medicine physician from uh, San Fernando, Mexico. Uh, he's also a Latin American public health specialist, and he's an incredible person. But I would consider him to be the champion of adaption to overcome adversity. Oftentimes, we would have an order for a treatment that was not available. In these situations, adaption was necessary for success. A perfect example of this is to, uh, when a small child needs a spacer for an inhaler. It was important to improvise a solution with a plastic water bottle, a sharp knife, some gauze, and a lot of duct tape. We were able to fabricate a spacer on site. A, a big roll of duct tape goes with me on every trip. Um, uh, MacGyver isn't the only one who uses duct tape. Um, but we learn things about creativity opportunities that can come back to us in the states to be creative in how we need meet the health care needs of our people here in the U.S. As we reach a more and more challenged health care uh, environment in the United States and resources become more and more limited as we have to approach health care reform in a realistic manner, we're going to have to find adaptable ways creative ways to meet the needs of people in this country when, as resources become more and more limited. Critical thinking. When I got back to school this semester, I could see immediately the results from going on the trip. I could communicate much better, and once we started class in lab, I could answer questions that I know I would not have been able to answer if I would not gone on this trip. There is an element of critical thinking that, that stems from the, as I said earlier, from the confidence they get. They may be able to, they may know the answers in class, but they don't have the confidence to speak up because they're just so unsure of themselves. When they go on an environment, in an environment like this, they come back much more confident in their ability to speak up when they know something. But they also have had to, be challenged beyond their comfort zones so that doesn't stress them as much anymore, which increases their ability to think critically. So if we're seeing this in a student, how is that affecting adult professionals or uh, professional health care providers in other areas when we come back? Um, but, so... As we looked at this pilot study, and we're starting to reproduce it on a much broader level, 
we redesigned it. We, it's still the same basic structure with the mixed, mixed method study with the pre-test, post-test attitude survey. But we have added one additional study, uh, uh, written response question and tweaked all ten of the previous questions that um, were on this original study. This time we're asking the students to give examples, specific examples of each of the uh, questions that we've asked. Um, the way we do this, they get the, they do the original confidence survey in a demographic sheet before they leave on the trip. Um, then they do the post-test and the survey questions between six and eight weeks after they return. We want them to have time to um, digest all that they experience when they get back. We don't want any culture shock that they might have experienced inter, um, interfering with what they learned. And they need that time to have assimilated everything they learned from the trip. So we give them six to eight weeks. And then after we get the survey results back, we go through their survey results. If there's questions that, they need, that we're not clear about in their results, we will call them and clarify any questions that we have from, the, from their survey results. And... Uh, the earlier findings that were coming out of that are coming out of this study were we are getting ready to start our second year of data collection and looking at because we have not yet reached uh, um, saturation again and we're going to keep keep pushing this survey until we reach uh, saturation eligibility for the study are any student that goes with IWU that could be pre licensure post licensure grad or DNP student. Uh, in the nursing program, we have opened it up to other students that are with any of the healthcare professions. So we have um, social work, physical therapy. Um, we've actually opened it up to, um, to the seminary also. Uh, eligibility if they travel with a medical team, um, with a medical team from IWU, they can, they can be part of the survey. Also, the three of us that are primary investigators for this, if we go with a team from our churches, any healthcare professional that is with us on that team is eligible to uh, participate. So we're not just looking at students and we're not just looking at nurses now. So we have currently got uh, one physician who's participated, the doctor from Mexico. Uh, I shouldn't have probably said that, but... He is the physician. Uh, and we have one chiropractor. We have one pharmacist. Um, and several experienced nurses and nurse practitioners. One pre-licensure student from another school um, that was on a trip with me um, to Nicaragua or Belize or somewhere. I can't remember where exactly. Um, and the goal is that we will eventually start see, getting to a point of saturation where we won't see any new concepts coming out. The same five um, the original concepts we're seeing in our early data collection, but a new one has, has come out of the second study, and that's learning about self. Um, this 
this is an interesting that most, and we're seeing this more with our experienced healthcare professionals versus the pre-licensure nursing students. They're able to articulate what they learned about themselves from this trip. Um, and that's more consistent with what I would say I learned with my first trip is what I learned about myself from it. And the critical thinking that we're seeing, this is a um, healthcare professional comment, uh, but she's also going back to get an NP degree. I feel like this trip has helped me to improve my critical thinking skills by having discussion every night. Getting to hear every individual perspective helped me to expand my thinking and not just think of my own opinion, but what others might think. When we asked her to give an example, the participant said, uh, when asked to describe poverty in one word, I said unclean water. Now I would have probably said hungry or hurting. Adaptability. I've always had a hard time adapting out of my comfort zone. This trip turned out to be nothing like we expected, although it may have been a little less medical missions. This was a teaching trip. Then we thought the way the whole week turned out was amazing. I've noticed that I'm less nervous when being pulled to other floors since the trip. I see more situations as learning experiences. Interprofessional communication. The barriers between healthcare fields were largely reduced by the common goal of providing care to patients and the close proximity we shared throughout the trip. Because of this, my ability to communicate with other healthcare professionals grew. Again, we're getting back to that same concept of those barriers being lowered, the silos reducing, and people learning to communicate with one another outside of those, those silos. And, and realizing that, hey, we speak with an awful lot of jargon that we don't share between professions and between even within a profession in the subspecialty areas. Learning about self. I do have the ability to be a leader, but it's the fear of failure that holds me back. This experience gave me the confidence I need to make decisions for my patients based on my education, knowledge, and experience. And her example was, I think I will be more aware of the reason why I'm in healthcare and choose to be more compassionate throughout my career. I think that when we, we talk about learning about self and about leadership, that's going to see us, uh, that's going to roll over into those areas where we're going to come home and we're going to see people building um, interventions for the needs they see here in the United States. When we learn to see people through God's eyes, then we are going to see the needs that are around us. I know that a few years ago, I was on my way to Kenya, and it was in February, and we got snowed in at Kennedy. And it was one of the worst snowstorms that ever happened in the history of Kennedy, uh, JFK, and we got the last rooms available in New York City, I think, and there were like three days before they got the airport opened. So we actually did a tour of New York City while we were there, and they took us to um, the place where the World uh, World Fair uh, had been in the 1920s, and they have that model of, of New York City that was there on uh, the day on 9/11. And it, there's, it represents eight million people, eight million people. 
And I was sitting there thinking, I'm getting ready to go to Africa. And there are 8 million people, most of them unreached with the gospel, right there in my own country. Seeing that model and how vast it was gave me a, a vision for my own country that I hadn't had before. And that's the kinds of things we learn about ourselves from these trips. We learn to see people as Christ sees them. Sheep without a shepherd. Um, in our conclusions that from this trip, a few years ago when I first started traveling with medical team, I came back from a trip and one of the girls that I worked with in the neonatal ICU, who was not a Christian, was very um, anti-religion, um, almost agnostic in her views. She asked me, she said, how is it that you can stand to go to these foreign countries and minister to these people and, and it not just get to you what you see? And I told her, I said, Kim, you answered your own question. And she said, what do you mean I answered my own question? I said, you used the word ministry. And I said, any time you go with the purpose of ministering, God is going to minister back to you. And much greater, much, much greater volume than you can ever give. This is a a team verse. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured unto you again. We cannot outgive God. When we go to, re- to reach people, to see their spiritual needs, and to reach them with the gospel, and to minister the love of God to people, whether it's in a foreign country, whether it's in the classroom. I'm so grateful to get to work for Indiana Wesleyan where we open every class with prayer and devotion. Every single class. We get to minister to the needs of our students, the spiritual needs of our students. When we look at the world through the eyes of Christ, with the purpose of ministry, God will minister back to us in such greater detail, with so much greater joy than we could ever give, that there is no outgiving. There's no outgiving. So what is our hope to do with this? With this study, what are we wanting to get out of this study in the future? What we really want to learn from this study is how we can take the concepts we're learning and turn them into educational opportunities to teach concepts that are going to come back and improve practice at home beyond cultural competence. We know it's going to help with cultural competence when we get home. But how can we use these these experiences to teach communication within the healthcare field? How can we use it to teach intercollaborative practice within a within the healthcare field? How can we use it to teach how we're going to adapt, guys? If we want 
to impact health care reform, who better to do it than Christian health care professionals? If we really want to impact health care reform, who's the best people out there to do it? People that are looking at it with the eyes of God. We're the best people out there to make to impact health care in the United States. Because we know that we are given a mandate by God to reach hurting people for him. So that's the kind of things that we're wanting to learn from this study. We're wanting to learn what, what, what else changes when we come home. What else changes in how we interact with our patients, with how we interact with people, with, and without how we interact with God when we come home. That's, uh, anybody have any questions, comments? I talk too fast. <laughs> um, I, I think this is, um, I, I was really interested in your title because this is something I've Prior to that, I was doing community outreach engagement for a large healthcare institution in Indiana, um, working in, in less resourced communities in Indianapolis. So, um, and, and you know, you, in, in that kind of work, you become very aware of the social determinants of health and um, the impact of that. And, and I had never, when I took this position, I had never done global work. I didn't know how I would adapt. Um, but what I found is that the social determinants of health, the impact of poverty, um, is the same in Kenya or Malawi. Obviously, there are cultural differences as it is in Indianapolis. Is it totally just different? And so mm-hmm. I do think that there is an opportunity, while we have been doing medical mission trips and many of the healthcare programs um, around the country have been doing that, you know, and it's exciting and, and you know, a little bit of Mission romance. Eastern Kentucky, where I'm from. Yeah, wherever. And, and so I think we need to look at how do we create those opportunities back in those communities where you can take those very same nursing students, where you probably can take more nursing students because it doesn't cost you $2,000 to fly over to Kenya, and, and do that in your own backyard and do those same kinds of things, answer those same kinds of questions, present those same kinds of um, opportunities to learn and grow as a healthcare professional, and more importantly, I think um, be training the next healthcare generation to be much more sensitive to this. What we're trying to now teach an older um, uh, healthcare provider population, and, and it's a new concept, and that's just not where medicine was when we trained initially. Mm-hmm. But the opportunity now to do it on the front end and recognize that it is not the old model of healthcare delivery, it is very much needed to the patient where they are recognizing all the challenges that come to that. To me, that's one of the things, it's kind of the next 2.0 or whatever mm-hmm. we need to be considering. So, it, it's, it's a very similar thought process to 
making sure rather than, rather than just going out and doing a medical clinic model that the short-term missions have always done is is moving into more what Teach to Transform is doing in, in preparing community health workers that can help continue health care when they um, when the medical team leaves, or making sure that there's somebody there that can meet that need. The medical team that I have tra- uh, tra- traveled with my whole medical team career has uh, always worked on that model. Um, the organization that that is the parent organization started in 1978, and they have always practiced from that model. We've always had a partner on site where we're going. Um, And there has been an absolute commitment to making sure that there is follow-up care wherever we're going, whether it's with a building team, a, a bus ministry, uh, a evangelistic team, a, a church camp, a Bible school, um, or with the medical team. We never just go in, set up a medical team, do a week-long short, uh, clinic, and then just disappear. We only come at the invitation of a missionary. Our organization has several requirements that have to be there. There has to be adequate um, numbers of translators. There has to be clean water for the team, adequate housing, and trust me, I've seen the term adequate housing stretch the very limits as I've traveled more than once. And there has to be a committed church that is going to do the follow-up. For every patient that we see, there is a medical record generated that keeps up with every single medication they're given, any treatment. There is an address that is collected on that patient. And every single, well, or a direction, I mean, it's not an address necessarily. It may be just a direction to their house. Um, And somebody from that church is committed to following up with that patient after we leave. And they will get a visit from a church member. All evangelism is done by the local church. We do not do it. And they have to have a committed evangelistic program in place or we won't go. And they, um, because it's not about the temporal and the moral. It's about the spiritual. And if it's not about the spiritual, we do not go. The whole point of what we're doing is to draw them in, draw people in to get their spiritual needs met. And so that's, the, that's been the model from the day one. Of, well, it was. This is the brainchild of the doctor from Mexico. Our team is is the brainchild from the of the doctor, for, and he's also a pastor in Mexico. So, um, he's he's worn two hats his whole career, and uh, this is the way he wants it done in his community. So, um, it, it it is designed to bring people into into have their spiritual needs met. You know. More than just, uh, and it works. It, it's a model that works. And if you don't have somebody that's doing the follow-up care when you leave, you're you're wasting your you're wasting your time. You have to get past the temporal and the moral, and you have to see the spiritual. Um, 
But then again, if we're not taking the opportunity to learn how it's impacting the people that are going, you're not just looking at how it's impacting the people you're ministering to. You need to how, how, you see how it's impacting the people that are doing the ministry. You have to see how it's impacting them beyond the temporal and the moral, too. It should be impacting them from a spiritual aspect, too. Any other questions? It depends on who they're going with, okay? If they're going with me and my church, you're going to be um, actively involved in some way. Um, we have two types of trips that, with my church. If you're going with the mission organization that's part of our, I'm part of the American, our churches are part of the American Baptist Association. So the mission service organization is designed to meet the needs of uh, the missionaries that are go out from the American Baptist Association, this service organization is just that, a service organization. The missionary identifies the need. The service organization figures out how the churches in our community of churches are going to meet that need, and they coordinate that. Um, and so, like, it's a real clinic. I mean, it's a little local clinic. We do primary care. That's all we're doing is primary care when we get there, and it's limited. And it's always through a local church. It's always with, in conjunction with as many local uh, health care providers as we can get to come in. Um, if it's bush medicine, in a lot of places it's bush medicine where there is no providers for several hours in any direction. Um, we do a lot of that, especially in places like Kenya and in Belize, when we're out in the bush areas in Belize, there's a lot of bush medicine where there's no, you know, you'll be, you may be two hours, two, two and a half hours away from the nearest medical provider there. Um, Honduras and some of the places there. Um, with my church, some of the things that we're doing through my church specifically is teaching teams. Uh, in Belize particularly, we're working on getting started. We haven't yet got all of this organized, but the next step up, training community health workers to uh, be able to identify when that patient needs to leave that community and get to the, the, the hospital that's two and a half hours away. Um, and that's the next step up from the basic clinic. And uh, it's a model that is kind of coming out of the mission service organization and, and coming exclusively to be a ministry of my church. Um, with the school, the uh, RMBSN used to do um, a separate trip from the DMP program, and it was educational usually in nature. Uh, we would go work with a partner on the ground somewhere, and they would identify the educational needs. We would we would take the teams. Um, if we had uh, MSN students, uh, family nurse practitioner students that were willing, that we'd do some clinic work with them. Um, but the last few years, we have not had a real big turnout uh, interest in those. That's above and beyond uh, in their regular tuition. Usually runs around $2,400. And because... It's not covered in their federal aid. 
financial aid we were seeing we were not getting a lot of students in that. So we kind of disbanded that part of it and now exclusively concentrating on the DNP with travel. The DNP has a global nursing, uh, global health uh, class that they take where they're taught the principles of global health nursing, global health across the board. And included in that is a trip. And that trip at this point is either in China where they're working in conjunction with a school of nursing in China, um, Belize, we're working with a partner, World Gospel Outreach in Belize, and a lot of that is education. There's a, a long-term mental health facility there that we're working with. Um, and in the past, we've worked with the Wesleyan School of Nursing in Laganov, Haiti. Those have been placed on hold, those trips have, because of the civil unrest in Haiti and will not be restarted until uh, we get a go from the, uh, you know, the, it comes off of the no travel list. The one thing about school uh, places of where IWU can take students is they cannot be on the no, no travel or travel warning lists. Um, the doc I was, uh, that runs the medical team in, that I travel with, he has invited us to bring students to his hometown. There is a school of medicine there. And uh, he's invited us to bring teams there and work there. But it's right in the heart of, of drug war company, country, and IWU will not even consider it. So Honduras is out. Also, even though World Gospel Outreach has asked us to bring teams there for the same reason, because of the, uh, the warning, travel warnings. Um, so it, the risk, uh, risk management for the university will not let us take students somewhere where there are travel warnings. Any other questions? Yes, um, this is a very personal story, but uh, my husband and I experienced five miscarriages and uh, a failed adoption. And I, the grief for me was beyond anything I can begin to express. And the failed adoption was probably, well, not probably, it was the straw that broke the camel's back emotionally for me. And I had a, I don't know, probably a three-year period of time when I got so far away from God without missing a day of church that I cannot even express the anger, the frustration. I know Scripture says the Lord will never leave you or forsake you, but I felt so forsaken, you know. And I reached a point that... um, I remember I just wanted to walk away from my whole life. I wanted to go somewhere where no one knew me, where I had no expectations. Um, And I got to a point where I said, okay, God, if you're not going to change this situation, 
you're going to have to change me because I can't live this way anyway, anymore. I mean, within days. Within days, the doctor that heads the medical team was at my church. And he said, he was telling about the upcoming trip to Peru. And uh, I was sitting there and I elbowed my husband and I said, I'm going to Peru. And he said, yeah, 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 we'll talk about it when we get home, which in you guys, husband speak means, oh, no, you're not. (laughs) So I went to Peru in 1998. (laughs) And you have to understand, I have never defied my husband, but I did that time. And uh, it, it was in February of 1998. There was El Nino flooding like you've never seen before in your life. We were in Trujillo, Peru, which is desert. And they get two inches of rain a year. And they were getting two inches of rain an hour. The bridges were washing out. They had sun-baked mud brick houses. Do you know what happens to sun-baked mud brick houses when it rains two inches of rain an hour? They turn to mud and they collapse. And uh, we were at one little church on Sunday evening. In The name of the church is Rio Seco. I don't know if any of you speak Spanish or not, but that means dry river. It was built on a dry river bed. Um, well, it wasn't a dry riverbed anymore. And so we were there on Sunday, and on Monday morning, it was washed off the mountain in a mudslide. And the dam burst while we were there. I'm telling you, everything that could go wrong went we washed out the airport. We flew out on a hard-packed runway, dirt runway. Uh, I mean, but I saw God work in such miraculous ways those two weeks. That I was there. There was no doubt in my mind that God was showing me who he was. And I saw him high and lifted up. Just like Isaiah saw him. And I can't tell you how much... The Lord gave me the opportunity to walk away from my world just like I needed to in a very controlled way... That was safe. Well, it wasn't really safe, but it was, (laughs) you know, he kept me safe. And he had me surrounded by godly people who could hold me up while he healed. When I say ministry, you can't go with the intention of true intention of ministering to others without God ministering back to you in much greater depth. But that's my story. And I have never been the same since. My husband said, okay, go this one time and get it out of your system. I have been more than 50 times. Um, I was traveling three times a year. And I have been on every inhabited continent and in the South Pacific and and the Caribbean. I have no intention of ever going to Antarctica. Um, It's the wrong uh, climate. (laughs) But uh, God has given me the privilege of ministering on every single inhabited continent. And I have got, I have family. I have mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children on every continent in this country. And he really does give back a hundredfold. You can't outgive him. 
And it's just amazing to be part of have a little baby girl named after me in Kenya. Um, it's just amazing to be part of watching God break down barriers and show his love. Because you know what he said? He said if we lift up Christ, how many people will he draw to him? All men. Not a few. All. If we will lift up Christ, he'll draw all men to him. And I've got to see that happen around the world. It's been an amazing journey. But I needed to see that because I needed to get my focus off of me and on to him. No, no. I wouldn't go back and do it different now if I could. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go back and do it different if I could. Any other comments? Our time is up.